Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Jeremy Ibobasi of the Portland Timbers, who's had three goals in three games of the MLS's back tournament. We had a really good dis- uh, discussion on racial justice issues as well. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Julie Ehrman, and Josie Altador, along with many others. So check those interviews out if you can. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Jeremy Ibobasi on soon, but let's start with some soccer talk from the weekend with my friend Taylor Rockwell of our partner, The Total Soccer Show, which you should definitely check out. Taylor, thanks for joining me. How are you? I am doing well now that Manchester United have secured a Champions League spot. I would not have been doing well if they had not, but here we are, and I'm in in, in a good mood, as, as good a mood as can be with all the soccer that's happening. Well, congrats on that, because Man United had sort of staggered in after being so good, but then over the last week, you you started to wonder, going to Leicester City, if they'd get the result they needed. They needed at least a draw or a win. They end up getting the win. It wasn't really that nervy in the end, and now they're in Champions League next season. What was your take on the game? Uh, I, you say it wasn't nervy. I think any time that there's any moment when if the other team scores, you're out, it's a little bit nerve-wracking. <laughs> uh, and it did, it did feel like the type of game that since Sir Alex Ferguson, this is the sort that they lose. Regardless of the manager, and they've had several, uh, it feels like, oh, Leicester, without a bunch of their players, they, they've been in free fall. This is clearly Manchester United going to win 4-5-0. and five nil. And, and then it did feel for a moment like it might slip away. Uh, in the end, they get the penalty, and then they get the Jesse Lingard insurance goal, which made me happy. It made uh, one individual very unhappy. Have you heard about the Jesse Lingard bet, Grant? No. Oh, it's amazing. Um, it was an, uh, I forget who it was. A guy named Anthony Johnson. You can find him on Twitter. He made a bet prior to the season that Jesse Lingard would not score or get an assist in the entirety of the season. He bet three pounds. He would have won, I believe, 135 pounds. Jesse Lingard scores in the 92nd minute, I believe it was today. <laughs> so he doesn't get the bet, but Jesse Lingard at least gets a goal. So that's a positive for him. What happened to Jesse Lingard? Seriously. Uh, yeah, that's a fair question. I guess, like, basically he was like, no, no, no I get it. You guys got to bring in Bruno. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I won't provide any sort of challenge. I, I don't know. I thought for sure it was going to be him and Marcus Rashford being the sort of duo that would grow up together and be at Manchester United for a really long time. Now it seems like he really does just need a change of scenery. I don't know if it's too high of a level for him, if he's being asked to do things that are uncomfortable, or if it's just that the sort of time has expired and he needs to find a club where he gets more backing and gets more minutes. It might well be all three of those things. But I am equally flummoxed by what has happened to Jesse Lingard. So I'm a little disappointed in Leicester City because they really shouldn't have been in this position, no. in my opinion. You know, the, since the restart, not good. Uh, lots of issues. Missing players. Uh, Madison is a terrific player who I think mm-hmm. if he'd been available, I think would have helped them. Soyuncu mm-hmm. losing his mind and yep. not being available the last few games, I think also hurt them. But... Now they're going to be in Europa League next season. Uh, And you wonder if they'll get the chance anytime soon again to qualify for Champions League. It will be interesting to see what they do this offseason because even though they're in a bit of free fall at the moment, 
you would assume they'll stick with Brendan Rodgers, and you would assume that they'll be able to keep hold of, say, Casper Schmeichel, Jamie Vardy, especially with the sort of strange transfer market we're expecting. So I wouldn't expect them to lose as many pieces as we might in a normal window. I think you're absolutely right that it will be a big circle will be put around James Madison and trying to fend off any advances. Maybe they'll just unplug all of their phones and fax machines, and, <laughs> and that's the way they'll go with it. Uh, I, but, I, but I take your point, because even you look at with No Soyunju, it's Wes Morgan, who I think I got a text from a buddy of mine that he's already put on the retirement 15 he did not look particularly <laughs> fleet of foot johnny evans looked like johnny evans especially with the red card so there's definitely work that needs to be done from a player acquisition standpoint uh whether or not they can do it i guess we shall soon find out i will say this about lester they seem to have a pretty good talent identification system Very i mean Soyunchu was a great find and, yeah. and was terrific this season until what he did at the end um as a Manchester United fan, is it a little underwhelming to be thinking about Europa League in August? <laughs> I mean, normally it would be because it means they're playing Europa League qualifiers. This time round, it's exciting <laughs> to, I think, given where they were when the restart happens, they were what, like, I think like 20 points back or something like that of Leicester in January or thereabouts. Uh, so it, it never felt like Champions League was even on the table so that they've managed to uh, finish third in the end, I believe it was, is very surprising. Uh, I think probably though next year, if it's the same thing, then it becomes a little bit of a problem for me at least. And Paul Pogba, he's staying, right? I can't imagine he would. he's going only because so many teams are going to be trying to play it financially safe. I think some teams won't have the money that they expected to. Some teams won't want to spend that money. And I do think there's something to that. I think teams are very aware this is a strange financial situation and the optics on dropping hundreds of millions of euros at a time when some teams needed to take sort of governmental handouts. Some teams may still need to do that. We'll see what happens uh, as things progress. But I think there is going to be a hesitation to spend massive amounts of money money, surely for the optics, uh, and then because maybe you don't want to expend it either. So it seems like Paul Pogba will be sticking around as opposed to heading to, say, Barcelona, Real Madrid. I don't know if either one of them will, will come calling this time, at least. Well, let's talk about a team that is actually spending a fair amount of money already, Chelsea, yeah. uh, which ends up beating Wolves 2-0 and qualifies for the UEFA Champions League for next season. And when you look at what Frank Lampard has had to deal with in his first season managing Chelsea, you got to feel pretty good at this point, don't you? To deal with not being able to sign transfers, to go with the, a lot of younger guys, to get to a cup final, qualify for Champions League. They did give up a lot of goals this year, but you know they're, they're still actually technically alive in, in this UEFA Champions League. I, thumbs up for, for Frank Lampard, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, if Liverpool don't have the season they had, I think Jurgen Klopp should absolutely be manager of the year. But I think Frank Lampard is probably the second most logical candidate. Maybe Sheffield in there, maybe maybe Wolves in there too. But I think Frank Lampard, for coming in with the ban, for the pressure of having Christian Pulisic, who wasn't necessarily a player that he expected to have or necessarily wanted to have, but found a way to kind of get him into the system and made it work with the backline that he has definitely had to deal with. I think he deserves a ton of credit for the way Chelsea finished, that they're alive in a couple different competitions as well, albeit against Bayern Munich with a massive goal deficit, but still <laughs> alive as what matters. Uh, yeah, I think Frank Lampard has been excellent. And, you know, getting Olivier Giroud to do things and stick around London is always a positive as well. Yeah, what do we make about Olivier Giroud, like, playing ahead of Tammy Abraham, being productive? This was a guy that seemed like he was on his way out mm -hmm. at one point. Um, maybe not now? 
I think I think a lot of what Chelsea do have to do with patterns of play, repetition, and the quickness that you can identify the first two things. And it seems as there have been moments when Tammy Abraham, uh, Batshuayi before him, uh, when he was deputizing, were just maybe a little bit off the pace or a little bit too slow to react to things. Olivier Giroud, I think, for his for to his credit, is a fox in the box, not necessarily a poacher, but just knows where to be, knows how to make the runs, knows how to faint one way and then drift to the back post. It's just what he's been doing his whole career. And I think if you're Chelsea and you structure your offense just a little bit so that you accentuate that strength, I think you're seeing the dividends be paid here because Giroud has been very, very good and not just in the face region. Although he is good there too, don't get me wrong. He's got a very nice face. (laughs) I actually like him without the beard. I mean, you know, to each, I think that's not surprising given that you are like entirely clean shaven and I am entirely not clean shaven. Yeah. Don't take that the wrong way because I just remembered you have a giant beard. But like, I do. I I'm do. just talking about Olivier Giroud here. Uh, which I should note, uh, people have asked like, if I was going to shave. I did shave it during quarantine, knowing that since I wasn't going to see anybody, I could risk it. And I have long said I was hesitant to shave for fear of how many... I, I think I, my line was, I knew how many chins I had when I grew the beard, and I was concerned about how many I might have with the beard shaved. I know the answer, <laughs> and the beard is fully back. <laughs> and it's going to stay there, I think. Um, Chelsea is going to be playing in the FA Cup final yep. against Arsenal next weekend. Initial thoughts heading into that one. I, I I feel like you know Arsenal ended up beating Watford on Sunday. It certainly was a weird game. They were up three nothing. Ended up winning three um, two. I I'm leaning toward Chelsea in this one. I just feel like they're in a bit better form, a lit a little more reliable, and um, and I think it'd be cool to see Christian Pulisic in a final and and yep. doing something really cool in a final. Yeah, I, that would be fine with me. I think no matter what, we will get an interesting game because Chelsea do seem to prioritize that attack. They try to get bodies in the box. They try to get those goals. Arsenal are more than capable of punishing you for that by sitting back and countering, but they too can also go at you. And they don't have the strongest defense either, as has been covered numerous times. So I think no matter what, we will get a very exciting game. The way Arsenal were able to ha- handle Manchester City in their fixture uh, – I would say that impressed me a bit more than Chelsea destroying a fatigued and sort of out of it Manchester United. Uh, I think I might lean towards Arsenal in this one, but I won't be surprised Ooh. if either one wins, and I won't be surprised if it's three to two or four to three. <laughs> uh, we'll be looking forward to that one next weekend. Let's go to the bottom of the table where Aston Villa survives in the Premier League with a tie at West Ham United. Bournemouth and Watford end up going down, and I'll tell you what about Watford. I'm a neutral here. I, I have no rooting interest in any of these teams. I kind of wanted Watford to go down once yeah. they got rid of Nigel Pearson with two games mm-hmm. left. I think that's fair. For what he did and, and the kind of fight he showed that he pulled them into a position where they were potentially going to avoid relegation and then got sacked anyway, that seemed like an ill-timed decision to me for sure. And I think we see that now with Watford finishing 19th and uh, being relegated uh, and at the hands of Arsenal kind of destroying them as well. Yeah. Um, In terms of Bournemouth, I've always kind of liked Eddie Howe. And so I feel like he's been a good coach in recent years. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the players this season that they had had in previous years. Actually, true story, Eddie Howe at one point was going to be the manager in my book. Uh, That ended up being Roberto Martinez. I'm kind of glad I got Roberto. Um, But, you know, Eddie Howe seemed like an interesting young English coach uh, on the rise. What happens to him now? What happens to Bournemouth now? 
it seems as though he will stick around with Bournemouth. I think that they have sort of embraced his philosophy that they tend to offer a good attacking play, not necessarily the best defensive play. I think that they'll be okay with that in the championship. I do not think they will be able to hold on to many of their players because there are a number of uh, players that have certainly proven they can perform at an even higher level in the Premier League. And then there's quite a few that I think can function with a team that's just gone up or a team that battled relegation this season. So I think they're going to be selling some players, but that does mean then that they'll be able to reinvest. I wouldn't expect Bournemouth to necessarily come back right back up because we know that is incredibly challenging, but it does seem as though the players still like Eddie Howe, the board still likes Eddie Howe, though they have underperformed this season and the goal scoring has really dried up. I think if they sell some players on, kind of solidify for the championship, which is a grind, we know that, I think that they will be more or less okay. That said, it is strange to talk about Bournemouth getting relegated from a team that we talked about finishing comfortably mid-table the past couple seasons. It it does seem like because Eddie Howe has that sort of strong reputation, because he is English, and I think because of what he has done with Bournemouth previously, we haven't had the sort of negative conversations we might usually have about a team getting relegated. Uh, But instead, it's Bournemouth going down, and I think there will be a lot of neutrals who will be okay if they come right back up. Well, give Bournemouth credit for winning at Everton on on the last day to at least Mm -hmm. make things interesting. They gave themselves a chance. Now, in terms of Aston Villa, I saw a few people after the game today pointing out that ridiculous uh, malfunction of goal line technology Mm -hmm. against Sheffield United, which disallowed a clear Sheffield United goal and ended up being a game where Aston Villa got a point, Mm -hmm. which was what ended up allowing them to stay up. Obviously, there were a million other things that happened this season in the Premier League. So do you have any issue with the way that went down? I mean, it's the nature of the beast, right? Like, I think at the time we were very confused, but it it is what happens (laughs) is that if the goal should have been given but wasn't given, you can't then go back and sort of legislate after the fact. You can't say, yeah, that should have been a goal. So actually, Sheffield get a 1-0 win. Uh, It's it's the frustrating reality of things. And at least it's not quite as bad as when, say, Sheffield United themselves got uh, sort of cheated out of a spot uh, years ago with West Ham uh, with the kind of illegal signings of Carlos Tevez and Javier. Mascherano. Uh, so I guess maybe in terms of the ways that Sheffield United could be involved, they'll take this one over that one for sure, since they are very much safe. But it is it is a strange thing that a technicality saves Aston Villa. I think maybe it's mostly just because their celebrations were so raucous that it felt like you guys are only here because of a technicality. You might want to tone it down a little bit with the Neil Diamond in the locker room. I will say this, that that game with Sheffield United with the goal line technology malfunction... I thought Dean Smith might get a little more criticism for not pulling a Marcelo Bielsa and instructing his team to let the other team score to make up for an obvious mm-hmm. error. I kind of wish he'd done that. Yeah, I mean, it's those, those happens every that happens every now and then, right? But it is definitely it requires it to be almost universally agreed upon that that is what has to happen. And I feel like this one is more like 50-40, 60-40 at best, 50-50, 60-40 at best. Uh, I'm good at math, by the way. And I think if, if that's the case, then he's going to get destroyed from one side if he, uh, if he does do that. So I understand why he wouldn't, but I understand why you would uh, want that for sure. At this point, Aston Villa fans are, are probably livid with me for talking about that uh, as much as I have. And I should point out here, Jack Grealish, terrific goal mm-hmm. uh, late in this one. And where you thought Villa, like, okay, that's it. And then they give up the equalizer uh, about a minute later. And so it made it pretty hairy for the last several minutes. But Aston Villa is going to stay up for next season. 
Uh, Dean Smith, I want to give a lot of credit to because he lost his father to COVID. Uh, it's been a really difficult time for him. And it looked like they were, were maybe going to go down uh, for a while mm-hmm. there. And they found a way to get the points they needed in the end. Yeah. And that means I think they absolutely would have lost Jack Grealish if they get relegated. I think there's no arguing that one. I don't know if they will be able to keep him. But I think certainly staying in the Premier League that he is a, a Villa fan and player through and through. Maybe that keeps him there, especially with some teams, again, less inclined to spend massive amounts of money. Maybe he moves. We shall see. But I think they have done what they needed to do to keep him in a position where at least he is still playing in the Premier League, regardless of which team he's playing for. So let's talk NWSL. Title yeah. game on Sunday, Houston 2, Chicago nil. Houston, which had never made the NWSL playoffs before this, wins a trophy. They don't have a single U.S. World Cup winner on their team. And yet... I felt like they deserved this, and and they get the early penalty. Um, Christy Mewis, who we might see on the national team sometime soon, draws the penalty, and then in the same play, pulls her hamstring. Mm-hmm. They convert the penalty, Sophie Schmidt. So five minutes in, they're up, but then Mewis has to come off about 15, 20 minutes later. Um, and they still kept Chicago from scoring in this game. I, I just... I came away, I, I know Chicago was missing a lot of players, uh, Casey Short, uh, Tierna Davidson, Morgan Gautrat, uh who else were they missing? They're missing a lot. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's been a number throughout, uh, off and on, yeah. Chicago's had a rough time for sure. And I'm a, I am a huge Savannah McCaskill fan, by the way, but she, and she had opportunities in this game, could not convert, and then... Late on the break, Shea Groom scores for Houston. Fellow Kansas City native, shout out Shea Groom. <laughs> and and Houston just I, unexpectedly to me, yeah. I was not thinking they were going to make this run. Nor was I. Uh, and I, I didn't even expect this game to go the way it did with Chicago looking as as convincing as they did, except then they do give those two goals up, and you and you do wonder. And I did think Julie Ertz had a rough defensive display, at least for the first 30 minutes or so. I think Chicago on the whole did, and I think they weren't really ready for Houston to be direct and try some of those sort of balls wide, but close enough that it's going to be a problem. And that is a thing that they've done throughout the tournament, throughout the knockout round as well. And once again, they're sort of able to utilize the speed that they do have and that directness to cause problems, and that's where the penalty comes from, as you said. I do think if that... Injury happens to Christy Mewis and it's still nil-nil. It is a much bigger issue for Houston, obviously because they're not one nil up, but also because she is so good on the ball and her passing vision is so good that she really does help you sort of play out of pressure and help facilitate attacks at the same time. So I think that they were already one nil up, cushioned that blow a little bit and meant they didn't have to still then go look for that goal with a replacement. So I think that partially explains it, but I am still pretty surprised that Houston were able to get a 2-0 win for sure. Are you like me in any sense wondering why Julie Ertz is not the set-piece goal-scoring threat she with her club team that she is with the national team? I am. I, and, and I don't know if that's because she's so focused on her more defensive j- job with uh, Chicago because she's playing as a center back. So she, maybe she's focused on getting back or maybe she doesn't want to let herself get as involved in certain set pieces. That's the only thing I can really figure aside from maybe it's the delivery. Maybe you just have to have that timing and that relationship and that sort of really drilling those set pieces into your head. Because we have seen the U.S. Women's National Team have really designed set pieces that cause lots of issues. And a lot of them do sort of focus on Julie Ertz and her 
attacking runs, but then her sort of clever, cleverly, cleverly disguised runs. I think it's definitely something that Chicago could have utilized more, and I'm not entirely sure why they didn't. I wonder if it's a set-piece delivery type situation more yeah. than anything. Late in the game, Alyssa Nair was taking set-pieces. I was yeah, actually was. hoping for a Nair <laughs> equalizer late in the game, which you, which you see occasionally. But in the end, she was too far up, and, and there were very few people back, and she ends up uh, conceding the second. Uh, congrats to Houston. The last of which I saw, they were just they had about 200 bottles of Budweiser in their post game celebration. So Hooray. good for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about the MLS's back right. tournament. Uh, like the NWSL tournament, we have not seen any bubble positives, which is impressive for both. Um, MLS is back. We're recording right now on Sunday around 5:30 p.m. So there's two games coming tonight. This show comes out on Monday morning. But let's talk about the two teams that are in, we know, in the quarterfinals, Orlando and Philadelphia. Philadelphia, I would have expected heading into this, I think they're a pretty good team. Mm -hmm. Orlando, I would not have expected. And is this all Oscar Pereja? Is it... What more is it? No, it's pretty much Oscar Pereja. <laughs> I think that <laughs> I think that's fair. I mean, certainly the players have to perform. I think Nani, especially for the assist for the goal, or the he does get the assist, right? It's the assist for the assist. Uh, but that little cl- cleverly disguised flick, I think, is pretty brilliant. And the players are executing, but it's the game plan that they're being asked to execute that they are capable of performing. And I think that comes from Oscar Pereja. He is clearly motivated. He is clearly inspired in a way that this team has not been before. And yeah, I think if you look at never were particularly successful not really making the playoffs consistently if ever I could be I could be wrong there but I don't believe so uh, and then you come in and you get the team into the knockout round and now they're winning I think you've got to give a lot of the credit to the coach I think so too and I've always liked what he's been able to do in MLS whether it's been with Colorado whether it's been with Dallas and I'm just kind of happy for Orlando fans that their front office finally made a good decision <laughs> is that harsh <laughs> um, nope but um, they're not like that much fun to watch yet. Uh, you know, they're no San Jose, but, um, but I like what's happening down there. I think they've got a chance to go deeper. I don't think it's necessarily a home field advantage, but, um, you know, I, I also think they see a champions league berth on the line here and maybe some of these lower level MLS teams, that wouldn't typically be in the running for a Champions League berth might be more incentivized than some mm-hmm. of the more established, better teams yeah. to win this tournament. Yeah, and 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 I think I think that's probably a decent shout. I think with that in mind, I think I remember a tweet from you about uh, Orlando City at All Star last year, and I'll just say that uh, this time around I would disagree with you. Then I did not. Is that is that an okay thing to say? What was I'm trying to remember? <laughs> I think it was uh, how many of the All Star team can name their current coach. <laughs> That was kind of harsh. A little bit, but I mean, at the same time, I'm struggling to remember his name. So there we are. Oh, shoot. Um, (laughs) Philadelphia. Um, I think we've seen this kind of coming, right? I mean, like, this was a playoff team Mm -hmm. last year. Jim Curtin gets a lot out of these guys. Um, Even that wild 3-3 tie against at LAFC earlier this season you came away from that thinking that this Philadelphia team is one of you know I think in the top what 25 30 percent of teams in the league yeah 
I, I, I wouldn't disagree with you there either. I think Philly have been one of those teams, uh, as a nominal DC United fan, I don't love them being good because there is that rivalry, even though they're hundreds of miles apart. Uh, but I think to see them playing the way they have and to then be reliant on so, sort of the kind of performers you would expect, like Alejandro Bedoya, like uh, Andre Blake, who has two massive saves in this game. Yeah. But then you get sort of like new pieces coming in. You get youngsters like Brendan Aronson, who obviously everyone is excited about. It seems like all of Germany is about to sign him. Him. Uh, and it does it does seem like this is their opportunity and they are doing their best to take it so let's talk about one game on monday night seattle lafc which yes. is pretty crazy for a round of 16 game but mm. here we are uh clearly the marquee game of the round and i know lafc didn't even win their group and yet i still like them in this game for which of the many possible reasons, no disrespect to Seattle, I don't necessarily disagree with you, uh, but I'm wondering why, you, why you're why yeah. you in on LA. I, I feel like they may concede goals, and they have basically every game, uh, even before the, the restart, but I like the firepower. I feel like even if you score one or two goals against LAFC, that's probably not going to be enough. And, and I think that's going to be the case against Seattle. Now, that said, we saw Seattle in a playoff elimination game last fall go into mm-hmm. LAFC and put together a terrific game plan and get a huge win. So I, yeah. think, I, I think LAFC is going to be extremely motivated for this game too, though, knowing, having experienced that. And so I just feel like if I'm going to lean one way, I'd lean LAFC. Yeah, I think if you look at their performances this tournament, they are shipping goals that defense needs to tighten up. But that Galaxy win, the 6-2 win against the LA Galaxy, it seems as though they're a team that can raise their performance when they are properly motivated and when they feel like this is a thing, like we know eyes are on us, people are going to be caring about this, we want to get that result. A rematch of what was a massive upset. I I know people who had already booked their tickets to LA for MLS Cup last year and had to change (laughs) them because of the way that game went down. And I think this time around, certainly there's no Carlos Vela, but then there's the contrarian argument of in a playoff game, you're looking to put all of your attention on Carlos Vela, but Seattle know that. And if they can nullify that major attacking threat, then you've got to kind of figure things out. You can have people getting frustrated with no Vela there from the start. I do wonder if Bob Bradley has a game plan, has a way to approach Seattle, and is able to motivate this team just a little bit more because it is revenge, it is a rematch, it's a lot of the same faces for L.A. uh, and for Seattle. So I I won't be surprised either if L.A. get this win. Uh, Then again, I was one of those people who almost booked my ticket to L.A. for MLS Cup, so uh, maybe maybe I should uh, just be quiet again. I will say this. I'm curious to see how LAFC tries to contain Jordan Morris because I think Morris is in really good form doesn't get enough credit for that, and it's not sort of recent form. It's been his form for a while now. Do you think he ever will? Because I think unless he leaves and goes to Europe and satisfies that contingent of American fans, it's always going to be, yeah, but he could have gone to Germany and didn't, and he's not motivated, and he doesn't care enough about the big-time competitions, which I think is, is unfair, but I don't know if he's ever going to shake some of that stick, uh, and I'm wondering what you think about that. I don't know if he aspires to do that, Yeah, honestly, at this point. And, and so... Does he want to potentially be like a Landon Donovan, um, a player who can have a big impact with the national team and stay in MLS most of his career? Um, I, I just don't, you know, he may, he may decide to go to Europe, but mm-hmm. 
To this point, he made a decision not to go to Werder Bremen. I think that was a big moment for him. Um, and uh, you know, what, he's in his mid-20s now. So, yeah. um, you know, it may be a situation where he's a, a, a lifer uh, in MLS. And I know there's a section of the U.S. fan base that will never forgive him for that if that's what he decides to do. But it doesn't mean he can't be an impactful player. And I think he's been a very impactful player for a while now uh, for the Seattle Sounders. I would agree entirely. He was a player that I had a lot of frustration with, especially with his one-footedness. People love the Travellas, but to me, when you are overly reliant on that one thing, it sort of shows you're not using your other foot. Uh, he has certainly developed his left foot. It's not quite a cultured left foot, uh, to use the cliche, <laughs> but it, it's much better. And then everything else he brings and his added fitness. Yeah, I'm with you that I would. I'm always down to see players like push themselves and play for other teams if if they're bigger. And then we talk about Christian Pulisic playing in an FA Cup final, but simultaneously if you want to be a lifer with seattle and win some silverware and and be very happy i also can't really begrudge you that is there a way to use the word cultured you know something that's not describing a player's like foot like I, i'm trying to think of a way at some point maybe i'll just drop it in in one of our conversations down the road of like oh taylor you've got a cultured uh, elbow to the throat yeah exactly <laughs> I like the idea of using it the incomplete, completely the opposite way of like, oh, that was a cultured elbow to the head. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm good with that. There's a lot of words like that, man. Like, mm-hmm. is it is the word N-O-U-S? I've always pronounced it as oh, nouse, yeah. mm-hmm. but it's always after the word tactical, yep. right? Mm-hmm. I'm still stuck on is it now or, or, or new? new. Oh, yeah, exactly. Somebody, yeah. somebody check in. Like, I yeah. should know this, but I don't. I guess I could look it up. But also, if you could use, if someone could use that word, N-O-U-S, and not use it with the word tactical before it, I would appreciate that. I was also an SAT tutor and still couldn't really definitively tell you the difference between effect and effect, so I just say impacted. <laughs> I always just use impacted, and I would tell people that if you see impacted written down, it almost always means the author <laughs> did not know the difference between the two and went with impacted instead. <laughs> well, thank you very much, as always, Taylor, for joining me. Hope you have a great week. Thank you. Right back at you, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Jeremy Ibobisi. Our guest now is forward Jeremy Ibobisi of the Portland Timbers, who has scored three goals in his first three games of the MLS is back tournament. His Timbers meet FC Cincinnati in the round of 16 on Tuesday at 10.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. Ibobisi played at Duke University before starting his pro career and he's a board member of the MLS's Black Players for Change organization. On June 1st, he wrote a Medium post called It's Not Meant for Your Comfort that you should definitely check out. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. There's a lot I want to talk about here, but let's start from a pure soccer perspective. Your goal meant Portland ended up winning Group F ahead of LAFC. What are the Timbers doing, in your opinion, that has gone even better than some of us had expected heading into the tournament? Yeah, I think going through quarantine, there was an honest reflection that those first two games of the season weren't who we wanted to be as a team. We didn't want to, we didn't want to be on the defensive at home against Nashville, and obviously that first game against Minnesota was a disaster, uh, losing 3-1 in front of our home fans, uh, a moment where we're supposed to energize everyone we might have uh, deflated a little bit of the atmosphere. So we wanted to immediately work towards writing that. 
And that meant being a little bit more expressive with our style of play, not feeling super restricted with what was going on, uh, but also understanding that we needed to have a, a flow that everyone understood in, in our movements going forward. And we needed to have a commitment defensively that I think a lot of people have come to, to respect about the Portland Timbers. And I think that that's what you've seen this far. We, we've had some challenging, close games, some where we were in control, some where maybe the opponent had a little bit more control in LAFC. Uh, but ultimately, we, we have come together as a team and we've gotten two wins, one tie, all against tough opponents. Uh, and, and we're really happy with where we're at so far. We have to perhaps work towards putting even more complete 90-minute games. And that starts with a deceptive challenge against Cincinnati, you know, where people might feel like Cincinnati's had a, a tough history coming into this league. But what we've seen in this tournament is that they've also got the commitment, the discipline to, to pull out great results. And we don't want to be another, another team on their list. One of the trends in this tournament that we're seeing has been young American goal scorers finding the back of the net, whether it's you or Chris Mueller, Io Akinola, Jonathan Lewis, others. What do you think explains the trend? Are there just more opportunities lately for young American forwards? I'm a little bit biased, but I think uh, we as domestic forwards have been ready for this opportunity. Playing and playing as successfully as we have thus far is never going to be easy, and, and we go through bumps in the road of our development. But what you've seen, especially from from some of the new guys getting opportunities, is that we're we're ready to seize those chances, and that we're we're ready to be valuable contributors to whatever organizations we're in. So I'm really happy to see uh, the consistency that's been on display thus far in MLS's back. I think there's plenty more to come from so many other guys, but uh, we're all improving, you know, whoever it might be, whether it's some of the new guys coming into the league uh, or some of the homegrown talent as well. We're all trying to mesh into our own clubs, our own identities uh, and, and finding our best selves as we move forward. And it's been great to see uh, players who in the past maybe haven't gotten as much of an opportunity uh, continue to get more and more chances, and, and we'll see how that unrolls itself. This is a long tournament down there in the bubble. How are you guys holding up right now? To be honest, I mean, there were the early challenges with FC Dallas and Nashville, uh, but ultimately once the, the health side was a little bit more uh, under control, the Timbers have found a little bit of normalcy throughout this rhythm. We've spent the last two years on extended road trips, uh, and that included long preseason stints in Costa Rica. So we're used to being in this team environment where there's not a lot of outside activity going on. And, and that comfort has allowed us to, to play without any, any uh, anxiety or, or anger at whatever situation might've presented itself. We're, we're used to things not being perfect, especially at the beginning of a season. And again, we're, we're here to win. So hopefully, you know, we've got around a 16 clash coming up, but, uh, hopefully we can extend this tournament as long as possible for us. On your medium profile, you call yourself a, quote, professional soccer player based out of Portland, Oregon, intent on promoting conversations on racial justice in the American criminal justice and education systems, end quote. What is your personal story of how you raised your consciousness on the topic of racial justice? Honestly, I had a unique path to, to get to where I'm at. Um, I was born in France, moved here when I was two and a half. Uh, my parents are from Cameroon and Madagascar. So obviously they're not, uh, they're not naive to any of the injustice that goes on to black people around the world. 
uh, having grown up where they've grown up and, and going to university in France, but the black American experience is such a unique, um, a unique story within uh, the, the uh, broader storyline of discrimination against black people in this world. And so I had to learn a lot. You know, I had to learn American history uh, going out of my way to find the readings, find the texts and, and the movies and documentaries, because my parents weren't the ones that were necessarily getting redlined out of neighborhoods, you know, or, or protesting in the civil rights movements here in, here in America. And so all these little details that grew into big phenomena, uh, I didn't grow up hearing from my parents. And so unfortunately, as a kid, you're not immune to racism, regardless of whether you grow up in an affluent neighborhood like I did, uh, or you grow up wherever it might be. So I experienced microaggressions, overt racism, racial profiling in, in stores and malls, uh, and each little incident has contributed to the fact that I needed to broaden my own horizon and stop focusing on the narrow path that I was trying to follow to be successful and understand that other people, A, weren't even afforded that path, but B, had it taken away from them. And so a big catalyst for me and, and how I would uh, mesh all of those different sources of information and how I wanted to project it out to the world was when uh, Trayvon Martin was killed. Uh, and I think I was about 15 years old. And that one struck deep because the, the language around his character, around his actions was disheartening. And that's to say politely, you know, I, I'd had friends who would do similar things, walk home late at night, wear hoodies, you know, smoke weed. They were saying all these things are, are, are a, a valid reason for people to perceive him as a threat. And I was sitting there thinking, I know what you do. I know the type of fun that you have. You have done worse than walking home at night high on drugs. And I'm not here to condone the use of drugs, but there's also a reality in this country that it is very prevalent in high school youth. And so to see the disconnect between how my friends were acting and what they were saying and their rhetoric and how they treated Trayvon, it really drew social lines for me because it made me wonder if I was in that position somehow, what would people say about me? And it hurt me. And so that again, ushered me into a deeper dive of American history and really forced me to realign my, my friends because you can't, that's when I also started to really find my voice and know that I was no longer going to accept being, you know, the whitest black guy or, or being not one of them. Whereas in the past I would be silent, angry, but silent. I knew that I just knew how toxic that was because ultimately they would try to assuage their own internalized racism by saying, you're my friend. So I obviously am not racist. But then they'd be like, you're not like the other Black people. Those Black people deserve what they're getting, but you are not one of them, so you are okay. Like you, you, You're like us. And so that's just one catalyst uh, in my upbringing, but there, there are several others, whether we're talking about the news found at Duke, and again, me finding myself a little bit on the periphery of those conversations and, and the justice movement going into um, that led by the Black community. Um, or, or like many others, the election of Donald Trump. Um, there's been a lot that has come together over the last decade. Your Medium Post referenced Malcolm X, James Baldwin. Uh, who are some of the writers who have most influenced your thinking on racial justice? There's so many. And 
I've tried to dial in recently and, and chart a path forward where I can take in different points of views. I think I need to listen to black women even more so than, than I have in the past. That's something that I'm working on. Um, but I think for me, and we're going to talk modern wise, I think ta Coates has been um, really big. He's taught me that I don't always need to be super optimistic about everything that's happened and where the future is going. Whereas in the past, I might have been like, yeah, you know, it's terrible, but we're going to get through this. And like, it's not that bad. Don't feel, don't feel bad about what's going on. Now I'm like, yeah, it, it is bad. And yeah, you haven't done enough. And it is what it is. But just because you are here now does not mean that I have this unrelenting hope that everything's going to get better because I'm used to, to feeling alone in the long run. And so that was really important for me. And then, again, I think Nicole Hannah-Jones has done such a good job of charting the, the discrimination and the inequities within our education system, uh, but also talking about greater, um, greater injustice through um, her numerous works uh, works of uh of journalism yeah she was behind the 1619 project among other things um with the new york times um, i think uh real quick i think the most yeah. one of the most important pieces that i i followed with her was the problem we all live with um talking about school school segregation and and how we really do need to honor the the promise of integration from the 60s that everyone likes to herald as as a big as a big moment. But then when we look at our school districts now, what's the composition in a lot of these major cities? Um, and then also she had a, the weekly episode on the New York Times with Eliza Shapiro on the New York school system in particular. So those are two that I would highly recommend people following. I assume you have a fair amount of downtime down there. Are, are you able to be doing a, a fair amount of reading right now? It's, uh, it's a little bit deceptive as far as scheduling because <laughs> We're on condensed schedules and we're still trying to get the normalcy of a normal game week. Uh, we, we are pretty busy, but there are, there are spare hours. In terms of the MLS Black Players for Change organization, how did that come together? Yeah, it was a, it was a beautiful process. It, it started, unfortunately, like with so many other things in this country, in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Uh, Breonna Taylor's murder and Ahmaud Arbery's murder. We started in a, in a group chat on Instagram started by Justin Morrow. And it was basically just venting to each other in a, in a moment where we perhaps felt alone or felt like we had our, our family, family circles and close friends from back home or from our own markets. We wanted to unify and, and let each other know that uh, we want to see a response from the league. And we also want to take advantage of being in Orlando and, and the opportunity that it presented itself. Slowly but surely, everyone's like, oh, you need to add this person to the group and this person. So we started building and building and building. And lo and behold, we had maxed out the Instagram group and we wanted to open it up to everyone because ultimately it wasn't about what 40 people in one Instagram group chat wanted, but this was, this was a moment that uh, everyone needed to have a voice on. So we organized ourselves on Slack and, and eventually got on Zoom calls together and I think we had around 70 to 100 people on one of those first Zoom calls. Started out pretty disorganized with, with a lot of conversation. But as I said, it, it was beautiful to feel uh, the, the power of our voices, uh, even in a private call like that, knowing that we were supporting each other and that we didn't want anyone to be fearful of any action that they might take moving forward, which 
uh, spurred the creation of Black Players for Change in a formal sense where, again, we wanted to be this platform for for Black players in the league to, to feel like their voices were heard uh, so that they could feel supported through some tough decisions that they would have to make, whereas before, a lot of a lot of decisions would have to be suppressed and emotions would have to be suppressed. But also, we want to we wanted to to tackle systemic racism within the league, uh, but also within the communities because we think that uh, there's a lot to do and we want to play our parts. And through a unified platform, we can do that. I'm told at one point a a large group of Black MLS players had a conference call with the MLS commissioner Don Garber. Can you share with me some of the things that players brought up with Garber on that call? Yeah, I would say it, it was a handful. Uh, we had about six or seven players, a couple former players, and and some staff around the league. And it was a very uh, personal call. Uh, lots of stories of uh, systemic racism, uh, feeling that sense of uh, unintentional discrimination, feeling not good enough um, in society, in in the soccer world, uh, it, it got pretty deep. Uh, and it was a difficult conversation like a lot of people uh, are talking about having. And frankly, the fact that we had that discussion tells me that we're, we're moving in the right path uh, as a league and, and as, a, as a black player pool. Uh, ultimately, we, we hope that there becomes a, a long lasting partnership with the league and with even our fans and, and the wider player pool, we think it's so important to have uh, support from a number of, of pathways, uh, a wide ranging coalition of voices that you know really want to push this country forward because we haven't seen this happen uh, in a consistent time frame. Every time we've seen movements, we've seen them maybe at in a decade at a time. If we talk about reconstruction, we talk about the civil rights era, uh, we talk about the election of Obama, um, we've seen spurts of what we want to see uh, this country live up to as far as its ideals, uh, but we also want to play our part uh, in, in ushering that movement, and that conversation was uh, one step in hopefully the right direction of a long process. Do you feel like Don Garber listened? I think he's listened. I think he's still listening. I think he's been very collaborative. I think Justin Morrow said it perfectly. Everyone right now, Don Gar- Commissioner Garber, uh, the public, you know, our, our league and our, uh, our club officials are saying the right things, are doing the right things, are listening, you know, are actively seeking, how can we do better? But the challenge for us is going to be how do we keep that momentum going forward as trends start to normalize? Because we have seen this in the past where people get active for a week, a month, but what kind of lasting change comes out of that? What kind of structural changes come out of that? And everyone's asking the right questions right now as well. How can we make this lasting? I think everyone has acknowledged that this is a point of no return for this country, that we have not faced our history ever, and that the more we continue to kick it down the road, the worse the problem compounds. And so we as Black Players for Change hope to, to keep that going, keep that conversation going and, and find the mechanisms uh, in our community, in our league, to make sure that Black players are heard Black youth is invested in from a soccer and educational point of view so that we are providing these opportunities for them when they're growing up. MLS has never had a U.S.-born Black head coach, not one. Uh, And there have been very few Black general managers in MLS. How does that start changing for real? 
you know, that's a challenge. And, and that's the conversation that we're having. You know, do we see a pathway for Black players as they transition from their careers to the front offices and, and technical staffs? And the overwhelming answer, if you ask the Black player pool, former and current, is no. We don't see a pathway. Uh, we've seen other players that have fostered certain relationships that have allowed them to excel as their as they transition their careers. And me personally, I think that's awesome. I think networking and marketing opportunities are the crux of society. And it's how you get into places. It's not only that you're qualified, but it's who you know. And so what we're asking is that we are seen in the same light, that we are seen with, for our potential as Black players, because when you foster that kind of mentor-mentee relationship, let's say, you're going to see the individuality of that person that's going to make them succeed in a, in a wider sense, in the, in the job that you want to put them in, and you grow to trust that person. And that comes with how you perceive that person when they're playing. Do you perceive them as a player or do you perceive them as a human with all sorts of qualities? And when we talk about the pathway and we talk about the cultural trends, um, that might help one person or hurt another person. You know, I, we don't think that black players have that kind of respect in a way uh, to transition so fluidly into uh, a different role. You know, we black players are often labeled with an attitude, um, struggling to um, gel into a locker room setting, and are seen as inexperienced as they try to move into these uh, later roles in their careers. And that's something that we want to write because we know that this can be done. We've seen the few that are there do a good job in their positions and be passionate about what's going on as well. So uh, we start with representation because representation can create that effect where, again, you help the people underneath you and you establish relationships and, and then we, we move from there. Before Portland's first game in this MLS tournament, your team wore names on your shirts, but you did more than just wear names. You went beyond that. Can you explain what you did and why you did it? Yeah, I think everyone is looking to, to educate and to inform the public about what's going on right now. And we've seen a lot of stances of solidarity on social media, which have been um, impactful because symbols drive narratives. Um, but ultimately, we also didn't want to get uh, too repetitive with what's been going on as far as just posting a Black Lives Matter picture and then moving on, never talking about it again. The shirts that we wore said, say their names on the front um, with the microphone in the background. And they said the names of various Black humans that have been taken from us in different ways by different people across decades. And they said, rest in power on bottom. And for us, that was an educational opportunity to show the wide array of ways in which, unfortunately, uh, Black humans have been murdered and vilified and then forgotten about and had their narratives changed if they haven't been forgotten about. So I personally wrote about Fred Hampton, a leader of the Black Panther Party. And there's a lot of misinformation and fear mongering that goes around the Black Panther Party in general. But for me, what stuck out about Fred Hampton, especially is that he was 21. And that's a really young age to be an activist, to be a leader. And so you have to understand the amount of charisma it takes to lead people that are going to be a lot older than you, to lead people that might see you as too young. 
And that's what Fred Hampton had at such a young age. And the fact that he was seen as such a threat that the FBI, who infiltrated all sorts of groups at the time, all sorts of Black groups at the time, um, wanted to prevent the rise of a Black messiah. And that's a quote taken from their own memos on a program called COINTELPRO. That, to me, spoke to the volumes of Fred Hampton's influence and of the coalition that he was building and you know, of the potential of the impact of, of his work. And so for the FBI to, to push the information and push the climate and the, climate and the rhetoric, that would ultimately lead to a law enforcement effort combined with FBI and Chicago PD that would raid his apartment in a shootout, a one-sided shootout. Uh, that's a story that needs to be told. And that's a story that I shared on, on my Twitter feed. Uh, and I encourage everyone to, to do their own research into not only my name, but the names of all of our players, because there are some sad ones about, you know, people lying on other people's names and saying that they did X, Y, or Z and that resulting in a, in a black boy being lynched or, you know, people, uh, law enforcement bursting into apartments and, you know, being in the wrong apartment, but killing people. Um, so these are, these are devastating, but again, they're forgotten about and we can't have that. You mentioned Hampton's youth. It struck me that John Lewis, the civil rights legend who passed away last week, was just 23 years old when he spoke in the March on Washington. And and I'm wondering, you're 23, and, and I'm not, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to necessarily, you know, nor do you maybe, like want to like compare yourself to them, but like, is there an inspiration that you take as a 23 year old, you're a young guy, that at your age, you can still have a really big impact on things with your voice and your story. Yeah, um, John Lewis was a, a living giant, as a lot of people have said, and his sacrifice, because he sacrificed so much to the civil rights movement, to the voting rights um, in particular, it's something that inspires me, knowing that he put his body on the line alongside so many other people at such a young age, got into that good trouble. Uh, it reminds me that, yeah, again, at 23, I'm not too young to be doing anything. You know, the the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee is is a similar is a similar uh, path that um, a lot of us are seeing right now. Just young youth coalescing around this idea of civil rights not being afraid, uh, or at least not being afraid to the point of backing down of what's going to happen, you know, taking these aggressive stances where, you know, we're going to, we're going to disrupt daily life. We're going to be loud. We're going to be, uh, provocative in a sense, because what's going on has been unheard, has been ignored. And we need to, we need to write that. And the, the collective bravery of this, of this group of, of young adults, uh, reminds me that I'm not doing enough, <laughs> that although I'm trying and I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to mobilize, uh, I need to do more. And I think that's where Black Players for Change comes into play. Uh, it took long enough for an organization like this to, to create itself. And we've seen a, a few other organizations before us that, that have charted a path for us to, to recreate and, and to learn from. Uh, but as you said, there, there is something to learn from, from these, uh, these legends, really. We're winding down with Jeremy Bobisi of the Portland Timbers. Really appreciate you taking this much time. 
very straight up question for you. Are white MLS players doing enough right now in your opinion? I think right now they are, they are learning to do enough and it's tough to generalize because I've had some conversations with some teammates over the years uh, about their work in, in racial justice and, and some talking about um, their work in trying to dismantle mass incarceration or bring soccer programs uh, into, into juvenile correction centers. And so I know that white people and white players are passionate about this too. And that, that really does keep me moving forward because anything that we do has to be um, with the support of the greater country. But I think there are a lot of other people who uh, have spent time on the wrong side of this storyline. A lot of people who, as I said, have vilified Trayvon Martin, now posting, rest in peace, George Floyd. And, and I wonder, and that's where my medium piece comes into play, if that's for real or if that's because they live in areas that won't tolerate people who aren't on the right side of this story. And so to those people, if it is genuine, I welcome them. I welcome the conversation. I welcome their, their need to action, that fire that's driving them to maybe right some of their wrongs when they were younger and their wrong ideologies. Uh, but if it's not genuine, then I kindly ask them to stop, to stop posturing because that, that's inappropriate. Uh, one of my friends said it best right after George Floyd, no one should be profiting off of black tragedies that have been happening for so long. You've been in Orlando for a few weeks now, but back in Portland, we've seen continuing protests. Now we're seeing federal police in unmarked uniforms detaining people in vans without giving them any reason for their arrest. What's going through your mind seeing that right now? My heart's with the city. I've spent, I spent maybe 14 to, to 20 days out in the streets with, with the citizens of Portland. And so I, I know the narrative that people are trying to create about Portland, how people are trying to dial in on the one, uh, the few videos, segments of burning or looting or breaking, um, which has its place, unfortunately, in this discourse, but should not as well overshadow the greater majority of what's been going on. I think every day there's been some sort of rally, peaceful, peaceful march or peaceful speech since the death of George Floyd. And what I noticed taking part in those is that the second that the initial uproar and fervor dissipated from, from the movement, once it was just about peaceful marches, the coverage was gone. The, the national coverage was treating everything like there were no more protests, there were no more marches. People were just emotional and, and pretending and just posturing to, to be a part of something. Uh, when in fact, there were still these thousand people uh, movements. You know, we were shutting down highways in Portland. We were, we were taking over all sorts of areas. And, and obviously, there's always been the, the movement at the Justice Center as well. So these have been prevalent. I'm with them. This is a gross overreach of power by the federal government. And unfortunately, the same people that claim to, to support individual freedom and, and liberties and the ones that have been protesting the use of masks, which would save all of our lives and allow our country to move forward, the ones who protested stay-at-home orders don't show that same level of respect for individual rights when it comes to protesting for Black lives. So we have to understand the hypocrisy in that and the hypocrisy in the ideology of wanting small government, but then all of a sudden sending paramilitary units into Portland to suppress a free assembly. 
So it, it, it's devastating, but uh, I hope that people are staying safe. I've spoken to a few people on the ground and, you know, they said it's, it's as bad as it sounds. Jeremy Abobese's Portland Timbers meet FC Cincinnati in the round of 16 in the MLS's back tournament on Tuesday at 10.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. He's also a board member of MLS's Black Players for Change. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Jeremy Ibobasi as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm-hmm.